0: Proverbs chapter 14, John chapter 14, and Luke chapter 14. Could you imagine being the early church as Jesus Christ has departed and we know from the book of Acts that there are about 120 who consist and make up the local New Testament church that Jesus himself has started. And Jesus appears to you and say and he says, "I want you to go win the world for me." Could you imagine how daunting of a task that must have been? In fact, I would even submit to you that now in our modern day uh, 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 world, it would have been easier now and more realistic for us to reach the world now than even back then. I'll give you an idea of why I think that. Well, first of all, because there were so few in number in the church at the time. Now, I was doing some research today, and you can't always trust websites, especially, I loved one website that said, uh, humans have been inhabiting the earth for millions of years, and at the time of Jesus Christ, and I said, wait a minute, how do we have somewhat of a Jesus Christ view, and then we have an old earth theory, but that's alright, whatever. That same website... Estimated that at the time of Christ, and this is has to be a modest figure, I would think, it estimated that there were about three hundred thousand people that made up the Earth's uh, population at the time. Now, I would think that would be kind of light, considering that the Jews in Egypt numbered over two million. But that, whatever, we can go from that. But I think that uh, uh, if you mo- if you modestly say that there were three hundred thousand people at the time of Jesus Christ on the face of the earth, and there's 120 church members, that would mean that every church member was individually and solely responsible for the salvation of 2,500 people themselves. Each person had to win 2,500 people. And that's with a modest estimate of about 300,000 people on the earth. To give you a little perspective... And I, I do appreciate Brother Frost clarifying the situation of a country that says such and such population is Christian. Well, a vast majority of that is oftentimes Catholic. And as far as I'm concerned, and as far as the Bible's concerned, they're not the same, and we don't have the same viewpoint of Jesus Christ. But to give you an idea, there are an estimated 126.7 million evangelical non-Catholic Christians in the United States of America. This is not the world, this is just America, 126 million. Now some of this will consist of, say, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, so we can trim this number down a little bit. I don't know where to find those statistics, so if you have that link, send it to me. We'll include it in next next week's sermon. But 126 million evangelical non-Catholic Christians in the United States, and there's an estimated 900 million of the same type of Christian in all the world. Now, if we were to figure out and do the same math as we did on the early church, that would mean that every Christian in the United States of America would be responsible for the salvation of approximately, are you ready for it? Two and a half people a person. If we were to see just America evangelized. Now, you see, I think that Looking back at Bible times when Jesus says, I want you to go win the world, it must have been pretty daunting to them as it's daunting to us. Not only because there were so few of them, but also because, think of the advancements in technology now. Is it not amazing that a person can get on an airplane and be in North Carolina or California in simply three hours? Is it not amazing that the same person can hop on another flight and be all the way around the world in, say, Thailand or, or China in about a day or a day and a half of flying? N- not to mention just our advancements in technology when it comes to travel. Think of our advancements in technology when it comes to communication. Does it still blow anybody else's mind that I'm able to video chat someone in real time across the Earth's surface? There's no delay. We were talking to Brian and Jamie Cohn the other night on Skype, and it's like, wait a minute, you're saying words, and I'm getting them within a fraction of a second from the time you say it. Is it not crazy, the advancements in technology? Tonight alone, this sermon is being broadcasted to every country in the world that has access to an internet connection. Think about it. And while hearing God's command in the Great Commission of go reach the world for me is an amazing and daunting task, it does seem a little bit more realistic now, does it not? Not only because there were so few of them, not only because uh, how limited they were, secondly, because there was so much opposition. Do you remember reading in the book of Acts how much opposition the first Christians were met with? Think about it, Peter and and John, they're just preaching the message of the gospel, and John the Baptist is beheaded for it. Peter is met at the Sanhedrin council, and they say, "Uh, you're not going to preach anymore in the name of Jesus Christ. They beat him, he leaves, goes and preaches some more. They call him back and they say, did we not straightly command you not to do what you've been doing? He says, I just can't help myself. But it's an amazing thought of how they were so oppressed, and Satan and other world religions were trying to shut the message of the gospel up, and it exploded. And now, in a day and age where we have complete liberty to speak, we don't. There's no opposition, there's no repercussion. Think about it, if you go to your workplace tomorrow and you tell somebody about Jesus, are you afraid that the police are going to barge in and take you to jail? Are you afraid that somebody might come and take your family and harm them because of what you're saying or what you're doing and representing Jesus? If the early church was successful at getting the message of the gospel out, can I just say tonight, we have no excuse. And while much has changed in the way that people must have been preaching the gospel back then, there are three ways that are unchanging in worldwide missions, and I want to share those with you tonight. First of all, look in Proverbs chapter number 14, verse number 16, or verse number 12. The Bible says this, Proverbs 14, verse number 12, the Bible says, there is a way which seemeth right unto man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Now, one way that the early church had to combat and that we still have to combat is this. We must combat the world's way. The Bible tells us that there will be a way that seems right to man. That makes sense to them. And, and they're going to travel that path until they encounter something differently. Do you think the uh, 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 Saul was uh, uh, confused about what he was doing when he was persecuting the early church? No, he said, I was zealously doing those things. He was excited about it because he was traveling away, which at the time seemed right unto him but it wasn't until on the road to Damascus where the Lord met him and said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It wasn't until he confronted Jesus, or better yet said, Jesus confronted him Amen. that it changed his mind. Amen. Did you know that the devil is not afraid of religion? Amen. In fact, I would even say that the devil embraces religion. He, it, it excites him because he's used it so many times to confuse people. Think about it, at the very first temptation of mankind, there with Eve and there with Adam, did not Satan use God's own words to confuse them? He said, yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Confusing them and and changing God's word. And did you know that every false religion does that? Confuses and changes God's word. The best lies are tainted with just a little bit of truth and a little bit of lie. The devil's not afraid of religion. And did you know in Luke chapter four that when he's when the devil himself is tempting Jesus Christ? Did you know that after the first two failed experiments on Jesus, you know what he does? He takes Jesus to church. Listen now. He goes to the pinnacle of the temple. And he looks at Jesus and he says, As it is written, it, it, God will give His angels charge over thee. In other words, not only does He take Him to church, He quotes Scripture at Him. The devil's not afraid of religion. And he uses two very uh, well-publicized religions to confuse people. Uh, first of all, he uses confusion. You want to know why uh, America is, has so many denominations? So many different stories, so many different preachers, so many different messages. You want to know why? Because he has muddied the water of the gospel. People don't even know what they believe anymore. You get to talking to what a bona fide Christian is. They don't know whether they believe in the Trinity. Uh, They don't know whether they believe in divinity. They don't know if they believe in justification, sanctification, adoption, redemption. They have no idea what they believe. And the devil's confused people. Oftentimes you'll go to a door and you'll say, "Uh, uh, are you sure if you died today that you'd go to heaven? They say, well, I think so. Well, what are you basing that on? Well, I I know God. I I pray to God. I'm a pretty good person. Well, they're admitting that there is some level of religion mixed in with their world view. And he's confused people. Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up. The Lord says, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah, being there in the presence of God, he says, "Uh, pick me, pick me, pick me, God. He says, I will go for you. And this is what the Bible says. And he said, go and tell his people. Now listen, hear ye indeed, but understand not. And see ye indeed, but perceive ye not. In other words, the Lord knew that when Isaiah took his message to the Jews, that he would be met with a tremendous amount of confusion. Even as he would preach the message of repentance, even as he would preach his message, uh, they would look at him and say, What are you talking about, Isaiah? And, And he would say, It's really clear what I'm saying. And he would say, We don't know what you're saying. And I don't know if you know this, but if you if you've lately witnessed to somebody, oftentimes you're met with the same answer. Yeah. What are you even talking about? I, I don't even know what you're trying to get. What do you mean if I died right now? That's a that's a hard question to ask somebody. Just suppose you died right now. That's it's kind of tough. But oftentimes you're met with confusion and. And the devil is using that as a magic potion to keep people away from the Gospel. And we must combat the world's way. Not only does he use confusion, he uses illusion. Look, this is someone who comes to the Gospel and taints it with their own viewpoint on how they can get to heaven. In other words, it's the rich young ruler coming to Jesus. And did you know that in two of the Gospels... When, Jesus, when this young man approaches this, uh, uh, Jesus, he says, Master, what may I do that I can inherit eternal life? Well, inheritance speaks of earning because of who you are, does it not? One day my father will pass away, hopefully that day is after the Lord comes back, and then we'll, we'll just get to fly up there together, and, and, and you'll be faster than me again. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. I'm excited about that day when Jesus comes back, but one day, if the Lord tarries, my father will pass away. And because my last name is Wolfenbarger, just in case you're wondering on how to pronounce it, Wolfenbarger, not Wolfenberger, not Wolfenbooger, junior high kids can be so cruel, Wolfenbarger but I will receive an inheritance because of who my Father is. Does everybody understand? And this young man approaches Jesus and says, what may I do that I can inherit eternal life? Almost asking, what can I do that I can earn some way into heaven? Oh, Jesus teaches him one thing you lack, son. Uh, You know the commandments. Uh, And he says, okay, what, what are the commandments? And he lists them all. And you should love your neighbors yourself, don't commit adultery, don't kill, don't steal. He lists all the commandments off. And the, the young man, almost excited, kind of cuts Jesus off and he says, All these have I done from my youth. And Jesus says, Yet one thing thou lackest. Oh, he wasn't talking about, oh, you need to be poor to enter into heaven. That's not what the parables are, that's not what the story's teaching. The story was teaching the man was trying to add his way to God's way. The man was teaching that there was a way that made sense to him, and that way was doing good and being good and trying to always clean behind his ears, and yet in Christ's eyes, he he wasn't even impressed with the work that he was doing. He was no closer to heaven than the nastiest sinner. And Jesus says, one thing you lack. And because that man could not add his own works to the way that Jesus had planned out, you know what happened that day? He departed sorrowful because he had not met Jesus that day. There's a worldly way, and the devil uses confusion and illusion. You talk to any person on the street, this is what they'll say. Who's not saved. How sure are you going to heaven? 99.9%. Why, that's a lot. Man, you're pretty sure. And then you'll say, well, what gives you that one little bit of doubt? Well, you know, I don't know. I'm a pretty good person. You hear it almost every single time. And what they're doing is they're adding their own way. And the devil has sold them an illusion of acceptable works for God. If you wanted to tonight, we could journey to the Philippines around Easter time when they're celebrating Lent as Filipino men and uh, walk down the street with a whip, whipping their back and drawing blood as they try to impress God and gain some acceptability with God. If you wanted to tonight, we could go to Rome and there's a set of stairs there which people believe were the same set of stairs that Jesus climbed up to go see uh, uh, Pilate. And we could go to those stairs and we could see a line of people waiting to crawl up those stairs on their knees to impress God and gain some level of of, uh, uh, salvation. We could go tonight to Syria, into the dark back room where a man puts on a vest strapped with explosives so that he might go kill uh, 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 people who are not of his own faith so that he can gain entrance into heaven as a martyr for his God. You know what the devil sold all of these people? An illusion. He sold them that there is some way to impress God outside of the work of Calvary. And I'm here today to tell you, there is no other way. These missionaries will go to foreign fields and we stay here on our local field. But the truth of the matter is, we will always be combating the world's way. Now, take your Bibles to John chapter 14. I want to share with you the second way of Christianity. We must communicate the winning way. Now, let me say that again. We must combat the world's way, and we must communicate the winning way. John chapter number 14, no doubt a very famous passage of Scripture. Oh, you'll probably know it. You probably didn't even need to flip there. Look at John chapter 14, verse number 6. The Bible says, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. First of all, I want to talk to you today, this is a pretty narrow deal. In our world, we're starting to see this idea and this migration of theologians to how every way, if you're doing it with the right intentions and good motives, leads to God. In fact, it's been labeled as pluralism. Pluralism is the thought that if you're trying to seek the higher power, there are not only one way, but many ways which all lead to the same God. That doesn't even make sense to me. How about you and I go up to Dallas tonight... And we start taking different roads and see if we end up at the same place. No, the truth is, the Bible tells us that Jesus is the only way. It's pretty narrow. The Bible says in Acts chapter 4, verse 12 neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name given under heaven among men, whereby we must be saved. It's not through works. It's not through Muhammad or Buddha or any other way. And there's no other way to God except access through Jesus Christ. That's a pretty narrow truth. But it's also a pretty broad truth. Listen. The Bible says in verse 6, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. While it's narrow in its acceptability as far as how to get there, it's very broad in the way of who to get there. You see what I'm saying tonight? while it's narrow in the way that we get to God it is very broad in who can get to God you see the bible teaches us in 1st timothy chapter 2 verse 4 who will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Titus chapter two verse eleven says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Second Peter chapter three, verse nine, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The Bible says in First Timothy chapter four, verse ten, I had trouble finding verses that talked about this. I don't know if you can tell. First Timothy four verse ten, because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men. The Bible says in Romans chapter. Chapter 10, verse 12. Boy, I'm having trouble breathing. I'm just starting to have a little fun up here. Get with me tonight. Verse 12. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord is over all uh, and is rich unto all that call upon Him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. My friend, it is very narrow in how you can get there, but it is very broad in who you can get there. So glad my God did not just pick and choose who can go to heaven. Because I tell you one thing, He wouldn't have chosen me. But the Bible just simply doesn't teach that. My God loves every sinner. I'm so thankful for it. And while we send these missionaries, they may go to their respective fields and have to change certain things about their ministry. Say, what do you mean, Brother Andrew? Well, I was talking to Brother Ryan Ashcraft this last week, and we were sharing stories about his mission field. And in his video last week, we saw that he had a very unfruitful time there at the start of his ministry. And you saw many pictures of him walking down the street in a cowboy hat and a button-up shirt. You know, Brother Ryan looked like a cowboy, like Walker, Texas Ranger, knocking on your door. I wouldn't answer Walker, Texas Ranger, in my door, but whatever. But Brother Ryan was knocking on doors. Did you know that it was not until months he had been on the mission field that he finally got entrance to to a home and and he started to do a discipleship program. And one of the ladies who he was discipling looked at him and said, Brother Ryan, next time you come, could you leave your cowboy hat at home? And Brother Ryan, why? Why? And and the lady said, well, we teach our children to stay away from the men with hats because the men who wear hats are usually drug lords. Could you imagine Brother Ryan knocking on your door? I got some drugs for you and the gospel. (laughs) Truth is, these missionaries may have to change one or two things about their ministry. You know, you you go to the Philippines and you wear a necktie, some people are going to look at you a little odd. They don't wear the same attire. And you can dress up, but they just don't have the same western attire that we have. You go to certain mission fields and you ask them for fried chicken, ask Brian Cohn, they're going to look at you like, what are you talking about? And while there may be certain variables that they'll change, did you know there is one unchanging truth of their ministry? That there is none other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. And that all men can come to repentance through Jesus Christ. There is no need to change that message. It worked for the old saints and it work for the new sinners. My friend, today they don't have to change the message of Jesus because it's good and it's godly. Oh, they can change a few unimportant things, but the one thing they don't have to change is the message of the Gospel. It's good enough for Peter and Paul. My gracious, it's good enough for me. Amen? Amen. So, there's a combating of the world's way. John chapter 14, we've seen that we need to communicate the winning way. And thirdly, I want to share with you tonight, we must commence on the working way. Luke chapter 14, I want you to turn your Bible there. Luke chapter number 14. We'll read in verse 23, however, our passage is actually a little bit larger than that. But the Bible says in Luke chapter 14, verse 23, And the Lord said unto the servant, Go out into the highways and the hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. Go out into the highways and compel them to come in. You see, our context here, just so you know, we're not taking it out of context, but there is a parable being taught here of a Lord who makes a great banquet and invites many of His friends. He's prepared this tremendous feast and he tells his servant to go bid those who had, had been given an invitation to come. He goes out and he starts inviting people saying, hey, the supper, the one you were invited to and you eat, it's now, it, we're going to have it. And one of them makes an excuse with some land that he purchased. He says, oh, I've got to go, I've got to go take care of this land. Another one has an excuse with some livestock. He says, oh, I've bought five oxen, and I've got to go prove those oxen. And the last one makes an excuse and says, well, I've married a lady. So you've got land, livestock, and uh, ladies. They'll get in the way all the time. But these men, they make an excuse. And they say, oh, we, don't, we, we can't come. I'll tell you what it does. It angers the Lord who made the feast. And His instructions to His servant at this point is, Son, you go find anybody. You go find everybody. And I want to share with you, first of all, the people who were bid. Look at verse number 21. Verse number 21, the Bible says, So that servant came and showed his Lord these things. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Now notice, this is where it gets good. Go as if... Preaching the gospel wasn't already good, but now listen to this. Go out quickly into the streets and in the lanes of the city. Notice, and bring hither the poor, and the maimed, and the halt, and the blind. Uh, What are the people we're looking for? They're people with needs. They're people with needs. Go to those that are hungry. Could you imagine being the servant, going to these rich up-to-do fellows and saying, okay, guys, it's time for the banquet. And they say, yeah, we don't really need what you have. we we got plenty over here. We're going to go do this. But could you imagine being that same servant, going to a beggar who's asking for pennies and saying, hey, I know you don't know me, but, but my master, he prepared a tremendous banquet. And you can come. You don't, have, you don't owe us anything. There's no obligation. You you don't have to do anything for it. There's just a banquet and it's prepared and it's ready for you. And all you have to do is come with me. Boy, that'd be a pretty easy message to give, wouldn't it? Could you imagine that blind man begging for pennies and now he's found a banquet and he says, you just just take my hand and lead me that way. Because he's blind. You imagine the beggar there, oh, alms for the poor, whatever he's saying there, and he's, he's trying to get a little money. You go to him and say, I know you probably don't have enough money for supper tonight, but if you'll come with me, I know a place where you can get all the food you want. Could you imagine delivering that message? That beggar would stand up, leaping, praising God, saying, man, I found supper tonight. Imagine going to that lame man who's probably been seated there begging for for just a, a, a little bit of food and and this servant comes to him and says I have a friend my master he's prepared this great feast all you have to do is come and partake no obligation just he's wanting to be generous he's just has too much he has he's overflowing with food and and it's ready if you'll just come and accept it. Well I can imagine the crowd that must have been going into that m- meal after that. But i bet the crowd wasn't all dressed up. Yeah. But the crowd wasn't all clean. I bet there was an odor at the dinner table that night. These people were beggars. They probably didn't have a place to bathe themselves. There was probably just a few people with a few problems there. Did you know Jesus said, They that are whole need not a, def- a physician. He didn't come to those that had no problems. He came to help the ones with problems. We need to stop looking for holy people to get saved. And we need to start looking for people with holes to get saved. Amen. Amen. Right. Man, my friend, you've got to understand. At one point, you were that beggar. Yeah, sir. It wasn't so long ago you were the blind man, you were the lame man, and some preacher or some relative or some friend told you about Jesus, and this was the invitation that was given Friend, I've got a master who's got more than you can take. I've got a friend who will love you more than you've ever been loved. I know somebody who's better than anybody you've ever met. And it's free. There's no obligation. There's nothing extra. There's nothing required. It's just free. There's a bountiful feast. And that night, you were the beggar. Boy, the people. The people. Secondly, I want to share with you tonight the places. The Bible tells us here that the master tells him to go out into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in. This could be stated as highways and byways evangelism. Go everywhere and anywhere. You find the main thoroughfare and you find the little bitty side street. But you go find anyone and everyone who's willing to listen to the message you have. And I want to share this. This wasn't necessarily my sermon But did you know that the people that rejected the invitation weren't rejecting the message of the servant? They were rejecting the feast of the master. Oh, if anybody ever looks at you and says, I don't really want what you have. You say, well, you're rejecting Jesus. You're not rejecting me. And so uh, don't ever be ashamed to share your faith. The places that we may have to go may not always be clean. Did you know not every bus kid lives in a two-story home? Did you know the hardest areas to get kids to come to church is places where the floors are swept and the dishes are clean? That's the places that are the hardest. It's the little kids that don't have enough money for lunch. It's the little kids that don't have enough money for presents for Christmas. And that's why we do all what we do for our bus kids. It's because the ones that are coming, they need it. And we're to go to anywhere and everywhere that anybody will listen to what we have to say. The people and the places. When I was at West Coast Baptist College, I remember one day driving up the road and I saw a car parked on the corner. This car had a a sign on the side of it that said, We deliver. And on this car, now I thought this was brilliant, on this car was about 25 restaurants. You call these people up. You tell them what you want. They're not uh, just strapped to one restaurant. They'll go to any restaurant you want. You just say, hey, I want Wendy's today. Hey, I want KFC today. Hey, I want Panda Express today. Hey, I want this, I want this, I want that, I want this. And as long as you're willing to pay the little bit of fare that's there, you know what you can do? You can literally never move from your seat and sit there and get fat and lazy as you eat lunch, breakfast and supper, fast food meals being brought to you. Oh, as long as you just pay the little bit of fare. I want to be very clear as we embark on 2016 Missions Conference. These missionaries that come, they are not a delivery boy. We don't just send a little money their way so that they can do our work for us. Listen to me. You are responsible for the Great Commission. You are the servant in the parable. When we have these missionaries and they come in, and we get to see their videos and we get to see their presentations. We stand hand in hand with them and we support them as they go to New Zealand and as they go to Thailand. And we give them all of our uh, 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 our financial support. We say, we'll pray for you. We'll love you. You have a need. You let us know. We'll be there to support you. But at the end of the day, we ought to love those in Thailand. and We ought to love those in New Zealand. We ought to love those in China. We ought to love those in Mexico. We ought to love those in Indonesia. We ought to love those in India. I'm running out of country. We ought to love them everywhere because the Bible says that we're to go to Judea and Jerusalem and Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the world. I'm afraid we may be getting a little fat and lazy as our missionaries come in and we send them out with our support, but we're not doing the work locally. Amen. Amen. We're fulfilling a less than great commission because around us is starving while we're tra- we're begging that others will go feed the places that they're at. There are certain things that will never change when it comes to worldwide evangelism. We will always combat the world's way. Yeah. We must always communicate the winning way. Amen. My friend, we've got to love people. Amen. And I hope tonight that this was a little bit of an encouragement to you as we set out on missions conference. I'm excited to preach to you. I'm getting tired of letting missionaries preach for me. I'm ready to preach this, this, uh, uh, this missions conference. But don't ever think... That any time we have a missionary and we're just sending them on their way so that they can do the work of God for us, it's not the way it works.